0: Amen. I'm going to start with two openings of Scripture tonight. Uh, One is in Galatians chapter 3 and the other is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Hallelujah. Guys, I don't know what it is about the lights, but something's different. I feel like I'm in the dark up here. I are. Anything we can do about that? Well, okay, we'll get started and see where we go. Galatians chapter three, verse thirteen, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Verse 14 tells us why. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now notice in verse 13 it says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law because he was made a curse for us. In other words, he became the curse. Now, in 2 Corinthians, thank you, that's much better. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, And has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Notice how many times he's talking about reconciliation. Paul was real strong on the doctrine of reconciliation. And this word reconciliation just simply means exchange. It goes further and and means mutually exchange. A mutual exchange. But all that means and and that just brings out a little bit more of the reality. That there was a complete or an absolute change that was made. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ was made a curse for us. Here in Second Corinthians chapter 5, it talks about being made new creatures. The born again experience is being made a new creature, a new creation because of this exchange. Verse 20, now we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. In other words, he's saying, he's writing to people that are saved. So he's not saying get saved. He's not saying we encourage all of you Christians to get saved. How would he write to the Christians talking about being reconciled to God since they were already reconciled? Well, he's talking about knowledge of this doctrine of reconciliation. When he says, be ye reconciled unto God, he's talking about having faith in and understanding how the exchange works. And then he explains it more fully in verse 21. For he, talking about God the Father, has made him, talking about Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So here's this entirety of this mutual exchange doctrine that Paul is speaking about. He's saying Jesus became sin so you could become righteousness. He's saying Jesus was made a curse for you so that you could be made or come into the blessings of God as a Gentile. Now, do you remember in the last night Jesus was with his disciples? Luke 22 brings this out uh, about verse 44, 45, somewhere around there. It tells us about how that Jesus left the Last Supper, took his disciples with him, and went into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says that he prayed, and remember he asked his disciples to pray too, but they fell asleep. And Jesus was praying. He was in, in great distress. And he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now I want you to think about that prayer. He's saying... To God if it's possible well with God all things are possible he's talking about the work of being made the curse for us he's facing the cross he knows it's just going to be a matter of minutes before the the Jews bring their military force military guard into the garden with Judas and because of Judas betrayal he's going to be taken captive he's going to experience all the things of the cross that lead to his death and his burial, and it says that he was in agony, and he was praying so hard that there were great drops of blood that came through his skin, penetrated his skin, and dripped on the ground. Now, medical science tells us that that has happened on rare occasions, but there's never been anybody that did that or experienced that and lived. There are times. When someone's stress or circumstances are so difficult that blood will begin to flow from their pores. But nobody, there's no medical record of anybody that's ever survived that. And so it says of Jesus, he began to sweat great drops of blood and an angel came and and strengthened him. And then the next thing that it says is very interesting. It says, and he prayed more earnestly. So he's praying to such a degree that it's affecting his physical body. He begins to sweat blood. If that's, I'm not sure that's a, a specific term, but that kind of gets the point across. And so the angel of God appears and strengthens him. So what does he do? He prays harder. It doesn't say that he sweat great drops of blood again, but I don't know what more earnestly would be if it's not more of the same. Why is Jesus in agony over this? We know what's going to happen. He does too. He knows that he's going to be beaten. He knows that the scripture has to be fulfilled, that by his stripes we are healed. So he knows there's a beating coming. He knows there's a painful death that's coming. But folks, if that's all that he's facing, if that's all the reasons, or if those are the only reasons that he's in agony in the garden of Gethsemane, I have a hard time with that. Nobody could man up more than Jesus. We know that Jesus spent less time on the cross before he died than either of the two thieves that were on his right and his left. And on top of that, we know that there are examples, many, many examples in the early days of the church, the early uh, the first generation of the church. When the Romans were persecuting Christians, they would find all kinds of gruesome ways to to, uh, to kill Christians. One of the ways is they would have these Giant um, bulls and and animals that would be uh, brass, metal of some type, but they were hollow on the inside. And these could be opened up, and in many cases, the sacrifices to these false idols, these false gods, were placed in there. And so they were built as roasting units or roasting ovens, and they put Christians in those things. They put Christians in them and lit the fires and got them as hot as, as they could possibly get. And instead of screams of agony on many, many occasions, it says that the Christians on the inside were singing praises to God. There are a lot of times where we have historical records, again, of the early days of the church, the first generation, specifically during the first generation of the church, where other uh, means of death were employed. In John's case, boiling with oil. But he didn't die, his skin didn't react in any way whatsoever. And so, what I'm saying is, there are historical evidences of times where the power of God would be on Christian martyrs in such a way that they escaped the pain of the death that they endured. Well, if, Jesus, if we see that God did that for early Christians, why couldn't God have done something like that for Jesus? Why couldn't He have done something to alleviate the suffering? Because God is a just God. See, when the Bible says that Jesus was made to be sin for us, when the Bible says that Jesus became a substitute for us, there was not one corner that God could break or cut. There's not one rule, not one scintilla of suffering that was necessary that Jesus could escape and he knew it was going to be something I believe that he knew that it was going to be something more than just physical pain leading to physical death turn back with me to Psalm 88 Psalm 88 is um, a mystery to many many believers it seemed to be a mystery to the translators as well I'm going to start here Under the heading of Psalm 88, before the psalm starts, there are oftentimes descriptions of what these psalms are for or about. Let me read to you what's uh, in this King James Bible that I'm reading from, the Nelson. Psalm 88 is a song or a psalm for the sons of Korah to the chief musician upon something I can't pronounce and something else that I can't pronounce. In other words, the translators through whatever evidence they had, take this back to the sons of Korah. Now remember the sons of Korah were the ones that were swallowed up when the earth separated when they rebelled against uh, Moses. Korah and his family were devoured into the earth. Now there's not a heading in the original text And so in most cases, let me qualify that, there are sometimes a heading, but not always in the Psalms. There's not always ironclad information about what these Psalms were for or when they were given. And it seems that the translators, because there's nothing here that really talks about the sons of Korah and the experience that they had being swallowed up by the earth. There's nothing that identifies or specifies them that I can see. But, but trying to ascribe it to something, Korah is the best guess that the translators had, I guess. Let me start reading in verse 1. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. So it's not talking about just one instance. It's not talking about just one period of time. It's talking about something that happened over a period of at least two days or nights. I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee Incline thine ear unto my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draweth nigh into the grave. That phrase where it says, and my life draweth nigh into the grave. And I know I give translators a hard time sometimes because of what they didn't know. But I don't think any of us would have known this at the time that the psalm was given. It's inspired of God. We don't know exactly who the psalm was, uh, was given to by the Holy Ghost. We don't know all the details. But that phrase where it says, my soul draweth nigh into the grave, it literally means in the, in the Hebrew that it's satiated with evils. Satiated with evils. Now satiated just simply means uh, something close to saturated. So it says, I'm drawing nigh into the grave. Literally, I'm saturated with evils. Who is that? With your knowledge of Scripture, with your knowledge of the Old Testament, who is that? I don't know of anybody that that fits. Not in the way that it's presented. Let's go on reading. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. This word pit is the word um, sheol. It says, I am as a man that has no strength This phrase, a man without, with no strength, literally says a man without God. So whoever this is talking about is talking about someone that is separated from God. Well, who is separated from God that's crying out to God? That's not usually the way that it goes. And if that's the meaning here, then that means this psalmist, the one that is inspired by the Holy Ghost, to give us this psalm has to be an unsaved individual. Or it couldn't it wouldn't? Unsaved doesn't work for the Old Testament. Everybody was unsaved, but you know what I'm talking about. Not somebody that at, attended to God or cared about the things of God. That wouldn't make sense. It goes further free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from thine hand. Again, it's talking about separated from God. But now it can't be talking about somebody that's separated from God here on the earth. It's talking about free among the dead. He's already talked about going down into the lower parts of the earth. Going down to Sheol. The place of the spiritually dead. It can't be somebody that's still here on the earth. Well that narrows the field a little bit, doesn't it? Verse 6. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Now this is describing this work, the description of things that we've talked about and others that even go further is the work of God. Folks, this has to be talking about Jesus. It has to be talking about Jesus. Now at what point was Jesus saturated or satiated with evil? At what point was Jesus a man without God? Only after his crucifixion. Only after he had committed his spirit into the hands of God and he laid down his life and he became sin as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit in darkness in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me. I want you to get the picture. Again, this, this has to point to Jesus and only to Jesus. When was the wrath of God upon Jesus only when he was made sin, only when the exchange was being made, spiritual death for eternal life. Sin by nature, spiritually dead by nature, versus spiritually alive. Thou lie, Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. This word waves is the word breakers. It's talking about have you ever seen, a, uh, a, whether in person or on video or something, have you ever seen when the, the uh, seas, the oceans, are in such turmoil that the waves just come crashing down on the shore? I'm not talking about little gentle things that sweep in and out, but when the full force of the ocean is slamming into the sand, the force behind some of those things, we've had a chance to see, see that on a couple of occasions, and the force behind those waves, nobody gets out in them, at least nobody gets out uh surfers are crazy you know that everybody knows that sometimes surfers try to get in the middle of these storms when the waves are the highest but there's no way any of them would risk riding it into the shore because of the force of the of the waves that are breaking onto the shore that's what jesus if this is talking about jesus and folks if it's not i don't know who it would be nobody else i know of fits the description And it says, thy wrath lieth hard upon me. Thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. It's talking about punishment. Apparently, the punishment, the price, the sacrifice, the substitutionary work of Jesus wasn't finished when he died on the cross. Now, if Jesus is facing things like what's being described here, the wrath of God lying hard upon him, being a man without God, being among the dead, then apparently there was still punishment, still a price to pay during the three days and nights between his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. And folks, I can't help but believe that that's what Jesus is pulling away from in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think he's pulling away from physical death. That was the easy part. That was stuff that just happened in a matter of hours. Don't get me wrong, it was painful, it was terrible, it was horrible. But in my opinion, if I understand the character and the nature of God in the scriptures as it describes it, it seems to me that the greater punishment was after his physical life had ended. It's certainly true if these scriptures are talking about him. That would have to be the case. Well, it says some more. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance far from me. One translation says he's a man without friends. Well, unless it's talking about the Holy Ghost as being a friend, I'm not sure that helps as much. But his acquaintance could very well be the fact that the Holy Spirit had departed from him. You remember on the cross, one of the last things Jesus said is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He wouldn't say that he was forsaken if the Spirit of God was still with him. If the Spirit of God was still there, then he would have still been joined to his heavenly Father. But at the point that he was made sin, he had to die spiritually. It was a requirement. It was what was necessary for the price to be paid. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance far from me. Thou hast made me an abomination unto them. I am shut up and I cannot come forth. Remember Jesus said about his life, he said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. And if I have the power to lay it down, I can have the power to take it back up. That was true until the point where God had forsaken him on the cross. It was true to the point where Jesus was following the will and the plan and the purpose of God concerning redemption. But at the point the Holy Spirit left him, at the point that he was forsaken and completely became sin. It seems to me that the, that the being made sin was a process. It seems to me that... As he went further and further into taking upon himself the punishment for spiritual death, the punishment for Adam's original sin and the sin that came upon the world, of the spiritual death that came upon the world, really. It seems that from the Garden of Gethsemane, he begins laying down his life. But it's culminated, it's completed at the point where he says, Why hast thou forsaken me? At that point, he doesn't have the power to raise himself back up. And I believe that's why the last thing that he said on the cross was, Father, into into thy hands I commend my spirit. That seems to be the point where he's all in. That seems to be the point where he says, okay, Father, it's up to you. I yield to your plan. I yield to your purpose. I no longer have power to control things. He also says that he's shut up and he cannot come forth. He becomes a prisoner of spiritual death just like mankind had when Adam fell. Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction. I have called daily upon thee or unto thee. That means it's more than just one day. Well, we know the time that he spent between the crucifixion and the resurrection was three days. Lord, I have called daily unto thee. I have stretched out my hands unto thee. Notice in verse 10, wilt thou show wonders to the dead? If Jesus is going to see the wondrous work of God, it's going to be, uh, have to be among the dead because that's where he is. Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Oh, thank God, yes. Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave or thy faithfulness in destruction? Again, this has to be talking about Jesus. These are all things that he will do. But hadn't yet done because Jesus hadn't finished paying the price. Shall thy wonders be known in the dark? And thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But unto thee have I cried, O Lord. And in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to stop looking to you, Lord. My spirit is still in your hands, Father. I will not give up looking towards you no matter what it seems like. Folks, the ultimate, the ultimate in being separated from God is the place Jesus was in. The ultimate of being helpless and strengthless was where Jesus was in, the condition Jesus was in in those three days between his death and his resurrection. It's the ultimate in being made sin, being made a curse for us. A few more verses to go. Lord, why castest thou my soul? Why hidest thy face from me? Well, the answer to that is simple, and that is because he's paying the price for mankind. I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. Folks, think about that. He's suffering the terrors of God, the all powerful creator of the universe, the waves, the wrath, the breakers, the evils. All of of those things are a part of the power of God's judgment being placed upon Jesus rather than mankind. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Folks, I believe if the Bible calls it fierce wrath, it's fierce wrath. Thy fierce wrath go over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. They compassed me about together. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me and my acquaintance into darkness. In other words, he's saying the only acquaintance I have now is the darkness that I'm surrounded by. The terrors that I'm experiencing. The fierce wrath that comes upon me. These are things that were necessary to bring about and complete the redemptive plan of God. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. This morning, if you were with us, I took some time to read in Leviticus chapter 14 about the the requirements of the the atoning work made by the priest for a leper who's cleansed. And the details, and I, I didn't even read the whole chapter, but the details, the tedious details of those things that were identified about what to do and how to do it, how those things had to be done it gets into the minutiae of the activity that was required. Now the only reason I bring that out or mention it is that this world that we live in and the laws that govern it, the laws of physics that govern it and the the tiny minute details that are involved in all all of the, the creative work of God that we see around us and Science is only just figuring out some things. It's not uncommon at all for science to come up with a discovery of something that they didn't know before, some little thing, that if if this some little thing was out of balance, then all of creation would cease to exist. And there's thousands, maybe millions of those things that scientists are just figuring out that exist here in this planet. And make it something that is unbelievably unique and unbelievably made. Let's start reading in verse 23, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Notice verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth to be a propitiation. The word propitiation here is a difficult one. It means the mercy seat. You remember how the Ark of the Covenant is made or drawings that we've seen of the Ark of the Covenant? We don't know if they're accurate. We don't know if they're they're, um, a real way that the Ark was. But a couple of things that we do know. We know the top had uh, angels on either end of it and their faces are covered by the wings that come forward. And underneath those, or between those two angels, there's a, a, a little bowl-type thing built into the lid. And that bowl was the place where on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring the blood in to the Holy of Holies and put that blood there uh, in that little bowl. Sprinkle that blood on the, the, the lid that was made to catch the blood that was offered, the sacrificial blood that was offered now that when the blood was applied it was called a mercy seat that's what this propitiation means but before the blood was applied or without blood being applied that mercy seat became a judgment seat and that's why it was so necessary for Israel to follow the details again the minute details of the sacrifices that were required by God from man and the method or the manner in which they were to be carried out and and entered into so here where it's talking about propitiation it's talking about mercy seat but the real thought that's important behind it is the substitutionary work of the sacrifice see the propitiation the mercy seat only became available through the substitute of the Old Testament sacrifices of the lambs of the bulls and through Jesus' sacrifice with his own blood so this, this is talking about what Jesus is concerned is the same thing that Paul was speaking of to the Corinthians and he tells some about it to the Romans as well about the doctrine and the ministry of reconciliation. It's a part of the exchange. It's a part of the substitutionary work of the Messiah. So it says, For all who have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth to be a propitiation or a substitute through faith in his blood, to declare the righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, notice verse 26. The language is a little difficult for us. And I think a lot of times we get caught up in the language, the difficulty of the language, and fail to realize what he's saying. There are a lot of things that are right out in front of us, right in front of our face. that It seems that we miss it because we get bogged down in the, in the language. But here it says the mercy seat or the substitution is for the purpose of verse 26 to declare I say this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now I want you to notice that phrase that he might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Believe in the shed blood of Jesus as our substitute. Folks that phrase, that he might be just, is so overlooked by the body of Christ. It's so overlooked by the body of Christ. What that's telling us is God had a specific plan that he put in motion when he created man. When he put man in the Garden of Eden, he told man, that it, Adam and Eve, he told them that you can eat of every fruit of the tree of the garden, but stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only command that they had. That's the only rule, the only restriction that was placed on them. And you remember what he said. He said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and disobey me, disobey my commandments. He said, thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt surely die. Well, we know the death he's talking about wasn't physical death. Because they didn't die for 930 years after They committed sin. So the death that he's talking about had to be spiritual death. There's only two kinds of death, physical death and spiritual death. So when he said, thou shalt surely die, he's talking about spiritual death. We see from Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. Adam's sin opened the door to spiritual death for all of mankind. Well, God certainly knew that that was going to happen before it happened. He knows the end from the beginning. And so when he made man, when he created the earth, and made man and gave him authority over all the works of his hands, God knew that there would have to be a redeemer. The Bible says that Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. That means God's plan for Jesus to be the redeemer doesn't just go back to the creative works identified in genesis chapter 1 it goes back to the foundations of the universe itself you remember genesis 1 1 starts off in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth and the earth became without form and void and darkness covered the face of the deep well it's not talking about jesus being slain from the recreation of the earth that man was put in charge of and placed in the middle of it's talking about god's plan of redemption before man was ever made See, God didn't just have to play this by ear. Once Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, then God has to have a a conference again with the Holy Ghost and Jesus and say, well, they've messed things up. Now what are we going to do? God's plan for Jesus to be man's redeemer was before man was ever created, before the universe was ever set in motion, and before the earth ever had a chance to become without form and void, however that went. God's eternal plan was to create man and to provide for his redemption through Jesus, his son. So here where it says God operated the way that he did, that he might be just, we have to understand that that means that all the penalties and all the punishment and all the suffering and all the things we read in Psalm 88, which I am sure only scratches the surface, of the things that were going on. I doubt if there is any way to adequately describe the things that Jesus suffered when he was in the lower part of the earth. Now, folks, this is not some strange doctrine. You may remember in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says, when Jesus ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. And then it goes further into saying, "Now now that we believe and we know that Jesus ascended unto heaven... What's the big deal about believing that he descended into the lower part of the earth? Now, I know it's a real, real hot-button issue for some people. But if Jesus didn't pay the price of spiritual death, remember the wages of sin is death, somebody had to die. If Jesus didn't die the death of the unrighteous, then you still have to for yourself. And that contradicts everything about the gospel and the substitutionary work that Jesus performed. So here where it says, God operated in such a way that his righteousness might be magnified so that he might be just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. It means, just again, as we said before, there was not one of the smallest corners that God could cut and make it easier on Jesus. He had to take the full brunt of the punishment In order to obtain for us an eternal redemption. So, whatever is going on in the depths of hell, whatever is taking place, notice in Romans chapter 4, the last verse of the chapter, verse 25. I'll back up to verse 24 so that we can get a little bit of context. It's talking about the faith of Abraham, how that believing God, he believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Verse 24 of Romans chapter 4. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed. Talking about righteousness. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who was delivered for our offenses. That means he became sin for us who knew no sin. And was raised again for our justification. That word for is incorrect. If you'll look look up the word in the Greek you'll find out that this word, this preposition uh, that's translated for, in this case, has to do with time, not cause. It has to do with time. So it would better be translated, who was delivered for our offenses. Well, let me get get the the exact reading or rendering. I don't want to mess it up. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again when we were justified. In other words, there was a moment in time when the price, all the things that we read about in Deuteronomy, in um, Psalm 88 rather, when all the things had come to an end. And after those three days, when Jesus was in the heart of the earth, the lower parts of the earth, there came a moment when all those things were satisfied. And God could justly, rightly, not because Any corners were cut, but because Jesus fulfilled the punishment and paid the price, there was that moment in time when God said, that's enough. The work is done. And because he did it in a just manner, Satan has nothing to say. Doesn't keep him from talking. But he has no right to claim that Jesus didn't perform the complete work. Now, folks, what I want you to understand Well, let me, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Let me make this comment, read a few scriptures before I make the comments that I started to make. I'll come back to them. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's start in verse 11. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies through the purifying of the flesh, in other words, he's, if he, he's saying, if the Old Testament sacrifices worked for a year, how much more shall the blood of Christ, righteous blood, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, he's saying if the blood of animals, which had nothing to do with righteousness, but was written merely a stand-in for the people of God, if that was effective for a year, it had to be reapplied every day of atonement, every year it had to be done again. But he's saying if the Old Testament ritual and the substitutionary work of the Old Testament sacrifices we're effective, limitedly so, but still we're effective for a period of time. How much more shall the blood of Jesus provide for us an eternal redemption? In other words, there came that moment of time when God said the price has been paid. The Bible tells us that the Holy Ghost came back upon Jesus. Jesus became the firstborn among many brethren. If Jesus was the firstborn, he couldn't be the firstborn from the dead because other people had been raised from the dead before him. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised the young boy uh, and delivered him back to his mother in that town that he was going through. There were others that were raised from physical death before Jesus. There were people in the Old Testament that were raised from physical death. And certainly that was before Jesus. So when the Bible says Jesus was the firstborn among the dead or from the dead, it's got to be talking about spiritual death. Because nobody had ever been born again from spiritual death. There was never a sacrifice that was paid. Or made that would enable somebody to return from spiritual death until Jesus. So the life of God comes back upon Jesus. He is made righteous. He comes back to the earth to pick up his body. He appears to Mary and says, Don't touch me, I haven't yet ascended to my Father. But he has in tow with him all those that were in Abraham's bosom that were waiting for the Messiah to appear. That's the captivity that he leads captive. He brings the captivity or the captives out of their captivity in the lower part of the earth or the upper part of the earth of the two uh, compartments. One was Sheol, the place of the dead. The other was Hades, which was the holding place for the righteous. Jesus takes them with him to heaven. According to Hebrews chapter 9, he offers his own blood in the heavenly holy of holies. So the tabernacle must have been a pattern of what was in heaven or what is in heaven too. He offers His blood as that eternal sacrifice and comes back to the earth to share the eternal life that He's received from His Father God with His disciples. And because these things were really done, because these are not fairy tales or fables, these are things that really happened. These are things that happened in real time. Because of that, everything that Jesus shed His blood for became an absolute reality the bible says jesus was made a curse for us he redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us that the blessing of abraham might come on the gentiles and that we might receive the holy spirit by faith here's what that means that means the sin that jesus blood paid for that means the poverty that jesus blood paid for that means the sickness that jesus blood paid for he is more real than anything that we can see around us. It means the work, the substitutionary work that Jesus did that brought us from uh, from death unto life, that brought us from poverty unto wealth, that brought us from sickness into health. It means the freedom that that blood produced and provided for all of mankind is more real and more assured than the foundations that this earth, this planet is built on. There is nothing that's more real than the fact that Jesus paid for sin with his own death. That he paid the price for poverty so that we might enjoy the blessings of God. And he paid the price for sickness and disease so that we might be healed. There is nothing that's more true than that. There is nothing that's more sure than that. There's nothing that'll ever be more sure than that. There is no single event in all of the universe and all of history that is more real, more sure, and more true than that fact. You have been freed from death. You have been freed from sin. You have been freed from poverty, and you have been freed from sickness and disease. And that's absolute truth. Nothing can ever change that. Nothing can ever alter it. Nothing can ever do away with it. Nothing. Nothing. Can change it because it was based and built and established on the blood of Jesus. That means not even your mess ups and mine, your failures or my failures. That can never change it. There is no work that we can do or fail to do that can ever change what Jesus' blood accomplished on your behalf and mine. That's why it's absolute. That's why it's totally sure. That's why it's totally certain. And that's why it'll never change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great plan of redemption. Jesus, we thank you for being willing to carry it out. We see you, Lord Jesus, drawing back because you knew what was to come. And we're certain as well that what little bit of information the Bible gives us that we looked at tonight, I'm sure it doesn't even scratch the surface of what you had to endure You didn't do it for yourself. You did it for us. So we declare that we will not neglect such a great salvation. We shall not neglect such a great deliverance from sin and spiritual death into righteousness and eternal life. We shall not neglect the great price you paid, the chastisement of our peace that was upon you, So that we can enter in and walk in the blessings of Abraham here on this earth. We shall not neglect. And we shall not forget. That you took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with your stripes we were healed. If we were healed then we are healed now. And we declare that all of the things that Jesus purchased for. Belong to us. We declare that we walk in them. We declare that our righteousness is of God, not of ourselves. But we have been justified by the just and holy God of the universe. We have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And nothing can ever change that. And for that, Father, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. We exalt you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior, our Provider, and our Healer. We gladly accept all that you have purchased for us with your precious, holy blood. Thank you, Father. Thank you that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. Hallelujah. We love you, Lord. We magnify your name. We receive all that you have for us. We believe that there's no good thing you hold back from. There's no good thing that you would deny us because you've given us the best of all things. And that was Jesus as our sacrifice. We bless you, Lord. We magnify your name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You remember some years ago when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out? You remember some were complaining about the movie because they said that it was too bloody? I'm not sure how it's going to work. But if when we get to heaven we have a chance to see the things as they really happened, If we have a chance to see the price and the penalty that Jesus had to pay and satisfy. The eternal claims of justice. We're going to find out that it was nothing. The movie didn't portray anything in the way that it really was. Our religion is a bloody religion. Thank God it is. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Thank God Jesus was willing to shed his. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us.